0: Welcome to the Production First Mindset, a podcast where we discuss the world of building code from the lab all the way to production. We explore the tactics, methodologies, and metrics used to drive real customer value by the engineering leaders actually doing it. I'm your host, Liran Chemovic, CTO and co-founder of FooCard. Hey, Neil, welcome to the show. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. First of all, thank you for having me. My name is Nir. I'm 40-something, 42. (laughs) live in Tel Aviv, wife, two kids, and I'm the chief architect of AppsFlyer. I've been so for the last nine and a half years. I've done various startups before AppsFlyer, and most of them, as startup go failed miserably. Then uh, Oren and Reshev, the co-founders of Efslar, uh, when they uh, got their seed money, they asked me if I wanted to join. And I joined them. It was, again, nine and a half years ago. And I was the first employee then. It was just both of them and me. And now, nine and a half years later, it's a big company, uh, 1,300 employees. We're doing uh, marketing, analytics, and attribution, mostly in the mobile landscape. And that's it.
0: AppSlyer, I'm sure everybody knows it. It's one of the biggest companies in, in the tech scene today in Israel and probably has one of the biggest footprints around. So kind of what did that infrastructure look like in the early days?
1: In the early days, we were poor because the seed money back then was low. <laughs> <laughs> We were still running on Amazon, but primarily the tech stack was vastly different to what we have now. We wrote in Python, and we used Redis both as a database and as a message bus. And we had a single database for persistent storage, which was CouchDB. That's it. That was the infrastructure back in the day. I think we had like two servers, three servers running on AWS. That's it. Nothing. Mm -hmm. No Docker, no nothing, (laughs) no... pure Python code, pure best script installations of the databases and that's it.
0: Is any of that code still in production? No.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No. I think that the most interesting aspect about AppSlyer is contrary to a lot of other companies that they have some legacy code that when new people join the company, people tell them, beware, this is the legacy code, don't touch, it works, no one knows what it does. That's not the case in AppSlyer, we're diligently rewriting both infrastructure and algorithm and whatever over the years. Not because it's fun, even though it is fun, right? But we need to justify it in a business aspect. And and the truth of the matter is that Epsilon grew a lot over the last decade. Sometimes it was linear growth. Sometimes it was exponential growth. It depends on the years. But as we grew, not only the traffic grew, but also the business requirements changed drastically because the whole concept of marketing analytics attribution in the mobile landscape was born a decade ago and it mm-hmm. matured to the point where we are now and everything is vastly different than it was back in the day. So that means essentially we need to rewrite everything almost from scratch As we come along, different Mm -hmm. services, different whatever.
0: So how does the infrastructure look like today? The infrastructure,
1: conceptually, we can split it down the middle. I'm going to give a few numbers because numbers are interesting. So AppStar is running primarily on AWS. We have some footprint on Google as well, but primarily on AWS. On peak traffic, it's around 15,000 servers. We're elastic during the day. Most everyone are. And we're handling traffic of around 130, 140 billion events per day. That means upwards of million, million and a half events per second in the system. So the system, again, is primarily split down the middle. One part deals with all the real-time or the streaming aspects of the system, right? So it has a lot of Kafka, for sure. There's a lot of uh, web handlers and uh, load balancers, volatile, ephemeral databases such as Memcached and Redis. We have persistent, high-performance key-value stores like Aerospike and DynamoDB, and a lot of microservices primarily written in, in Clojure and Go. That's one half of the system. The other half of the system is our offline processing. All the events that we stream through Kafka, we flush them down into our data lake. We use S3 on Amazon as data lake. We're running also Delta lake on top of that. And then we have a lot of Hadoop clusters uh, where we run multiple Spark jobs to do our glorified MapReduce, <laughs> the results of which get written back into S3, into the data lake, and also into analytical databases, primarily among those, is Druid. That's how the system looks.
0: Yeah, that's a pretty big system. I yeah. mean, that's quite a journey from just two servers running Python to 15,000 servers mm-hmm. running everything. So kind of, can you share a bit more about that journey? How did you go about adopting, especially dumping technologies as you grew out of them? How did you know when you should change a technology and how did you go about it?
1: So the easy answer is when it broke. Right, so <laughs> uh, so back in the day, uh, the journey we can split it into three parts. Epsilar is conceptually we had like uh, uh, the incubation phase or the early stage. We had uh, uh, the hypergrowth stage, which we're still in right now, but it's much more uh, mature. And right now we're what I like to call in the mature phase. So back at the beginning, the early phase, we had no problem. Everything was written in Python because it's easy, and Python is really easy to to write production, grade code to our clients. A lot of clients called us in the morning asking for feature A or B or C, and in noon or the afternoon, we called them back, and we told them, it's in production, it's ready, <laughs> you can go. And then as we started to grow, we uh, hit our first major bump of traffic, Right. A lot of traffic was pouring to the system, and Python is amazing in lots of stuff, but it has that obnoxious gill the the global (laughs) interpreter lock, which means that essentially you can't do a concurrent or parallel walk unless it's on top of I.O. But we had some also CPU stuff to do. Then we knew that we have to grow in how we look at the system, right? Because Mm -hmm. up until then, the concepts were there. We had the concepts of microservices because everyone had them. We had the concept of message bus because service A didn't communicate directly with service B. It, it communicated with the message bus, which was a good concept. Again, back in the day, it was, the message bus was based primarily on uh, Redis PubSub. But uh, as we came into this uh, first traffic bump, we had to change technology stacks because Python didn't serve us as well. And Redis also started jittering as the traffic grew. And again, Redis is a single point. Oh, we, can, we could have sharded it and blah, 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 blah. So when you come to that point, you can go in one of two uh, distinct routes. You can either take uh, whatever tool you have right now, hack it or delve deep and and do whatever you need to do in order to make it work. We could have run C code on top of Python or or we could have used uh, PyPy or we could have used uh, a lot of other stuff. And again, with Redis, we could have uh, sharded it and whatever. The alternative is simply to adopt a new tool. And the business constraints of AppSlyer dictated that we don't have the time To start digging deep into the existing technology, it will be much simpler to take off-the-shelf technology and just adopt that. And maybe the new paradigms that will come with the new technology will also serve us in the future. So the first major shift in AppStyle, which was kind of, I think, two years down the road, we ditched Python and we transitioned everything to Clojure. Closure is a functional language. It's a Lisp that runs on top of the JVM. And the implementation doesn't really matter. The, 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 the only thing that interested us back in the day was we wanted a functional programming language. Why? Because it's really, really easy to do parallel and concurrent work over functional languages. We had both Reshev, the co-founder and the CTO, and myself had... A lot of previous experience in parallel walk on top of uh, OO languages. And we knew that it's difficult to say the least. It can become difficult. And we saw the traffic and, and we started seeing where it will take us. And we say, well, we don't have time. To deal with the nitty-gritty aspects of trying to do like uh, multiple locks and incremental backoffs of lock release and stuff like that over regular OO code, and we wanted functional code. So we chose closure and closure. more than the programming language itself brought with it a slew of ideas that are relevant to functional programming, such as uh, uh, CSP communicating sequential processes. And at that point we also ditched Redis and adopted Kafka. And that was the major first shift of the system, right? Uh, instead of Python and Redis, now we had Clojure and Kafka. And it was really, really difficult at the beginning uh, because uh, change is always difficult. But, you know, two years in, we were like, I don't know, three developers, four developers, five developers. It's easy. Mm-hmm. When, when the workforce is small, it's really, really easy. And then we had several databases and services that refused to scale. Mm-hmm. Now we come to the second phase of Epsilar where traffic grew an order of magnitude every year. Essentially, every tool that we adopted in the database landscape had the like the single promise of, uh, hey, hey, look, I'm supporting infinite scale and scale-out paradigm, and everything was nice up until a point. When we reached that point, stuff broke. And then we didn't have the option but to migrate from one tech stack to another tech stack. Mm-hmm. And, and if you look at the pure, like the main database back in the day of Epsilon, where we did the matching algorithm... It was written first in CouchDB, then we wrote it in Mongo, then we transitioned it to Toku a mix, then we transitioned it to Couchbase, and now it's Aerospike. And this is just one aspect of the system. We had other stuff of the system, the algorithm, the analytics sorry database. Again, it started in CouchDB and then we transitioned it to memcache. I don't remember the name of the database. It was in-memory SQL database, and it grew with us up until a point, but then it broke again, and then mm-hmm. we transitioned to Druid, and Druid is really nice, but then we had, even now we have like a Lambda architecture with Druid because it only supports, Druid is a time series database, and events that we stream to it as we speak, it can be in the past, so we have to have like a Lambda architecture of Druid and Clickhouse together and blah, 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 blah. So we needed to change a lot of this stuff along the way, and. Change is difficult. Yeah.
0: I would say most people would argue that changing languages is not that hard, especially for a microservices environment. Just write the new piece of code in a different language, pipe it back in, and over time, you're going to get new code in the new language over the old language message buses are also a bit easier. You start writing to both, and then at some point you start reading from the new one over the old ones. Changing database, on the other hand, is way more challenging, way more complex. You have to migrate the data, you have to shift your business logic paradigms to a certain extent, to update the queries. How do you go about those large projects, especially with so much data and so much traffic involved?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So I always like to say that in AppSlyer, we we're not doing any work that's super-duper complex in the algorithmic sense, right? That also changes as we speak right now because the attribution landscape is changing, so we're doing really, really interesting stuff with machine learning, but but the main core aspect of Epsilon and the, the main difficulties of working in Epsilon revolve around the sheer scale of the data that we have to work with, right? So migrating database. It's easy if, if the database is small, right? <laughs> if you have a, a database with a thousand records, you just back it up, restore it to someone else, or even go over it uh, line by line by script, write it into another database, and you're done. And essentially, it can take a few seconds. What happens if you have a database of 12 billion records, 15 billion records, 30 billion records, where the backup and restore process takes more than a week? Right. Mm-hmm. So, if the backup and restore process takes more than a week, I can't like hang a message on my front door saying uh, "listen, out of service, be back in a week" because the business needs to continue. A lot of 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 uh, the expertise that we have developed over the years have to do with these kinds of migrations. So, what we actually do first, we formulate a game plan. Right? And people think that migrating database is something that can take like a few days or whatever. Again, at lower scales, it is true. But like you said, Iran, when, when when the paradigms are different, the scale is different, it can take even a few months. So how do we go about it? So first of all, we go into an early period where we try and find out the new database that will work for us. Usually take like a month or so to, to read, write a few POCs, uh, stream a bit of data, see how it behaves. Once we've picked the potential winner, we low test it, we stress test it. We spin up machines and then we start bombarding them with actual data. doesn't have to be any relevant data, but it has to be data that approximates the data in production and we see how they handle there. And once we've gained the confidence that it will work for us, both not only on the operational aspect, because the operational aspect is also split around many other aspects. One of them is streaming data into the database. One of them is, essentially, one of them is writing, one of them is reading. But also, can we do cross-dataset replication? Can we do XDR? Can we do backup and restore in the same manner? How does the backup impacts the performance of the other services or when the backup is running and stuff like that, right? So we take all of that into consideration when we're testing the database. And again, once we've said, okay, we're good, then comes the tricky part. Because if you're migrating from, say, one version of AeroSpike to another version of AeroSpike, it's, it's easier. It's not easy, but it's easier. But essentially, the change means that your code base now needs to talk, quote unquote, to two different databases, right? One of them is the old database and one of them is the new database. So we start there, we write the slice of code and we put it into production, right? First, a single machine, a canary deployment into production. Then we see that the single machine has no discernible negative impact when talking to two databases at the same at the same time. Mostly, one database is the old database is read and write, and the new database is only writing the new data to. Once we have confidence that this works, what we do is we're backupping the old data, restoring it into the new cluster, and before we rest- as we start backupping the new data, our entire code base also starts talking to new databases. So we're running into the two databases at the same time, and then we're starting the backup process. And this takes a few days because it's a lot of data. And then we're restoring the data into the new cluster, but in the meantime, some data, some new data was already written into it, right? When we're restoring the data into the new database, we're doing it in a manner that says if the key or whatever already exists, don't overwrite it, mm-hmm. right? Just take the new one. So, again, th- this also needs to be supported by the new database that we choose. That's the easy way. But what happens if you're migrating from MemSQL, that was the database we had back then, what happens when you're migrating from MemSQL to Druid or from from Couchbase to Aerospike? This is different because not only are the database drivers different, also probably the queries, uh, the indexing, the whatever, right? So again, it's a lot to do with Applicative code and infrastructure code. So the applicative code, we essentially have a service or a bunch of services that know how to communicate in both languages or or dialects or, or whatever. And then if we can do a backup and restore because it's the same engine, good for us. If we can do a backup and we can't restore because it's a different engine, Then we have to get creative. So sometimes if it's a a, a database X, you can iterate over the backup file with some script or whatever and then write another service that iterates over the backup data and write it into the new database. Again, with the same logic, if the key exists, don't overwrite, if the index exists, don't overwrite, something like that. But uh, if you can't do it, then essentially what you need to do is to spin up a third cluster restore the data into it, right? So you have the old database, Technology X, the new database, Technology Y, and then you have the backup, which you restore to, which is also Technology X, the the old one, and then you write another service that goes line by line or key by key and just writes to to the new database. And again, when the two databases are full, again, quote-unquote, we run them side-by-side side in production, and we do a lot of sanity checks, both in key volumes or row volumes and, and checking uh, for key hit or misses between the database. And once we're satisfied that everything is good in the new database, then we retire the old one via configuration. This entire process can take anywhere between a couple of weeks to a couple of months because it's it's a lot of data and it's difficult. So I think that it sounds easy enough, but reality is difficult. And reality also means that uh, we have to support now two databases. Now we have pager duties or, or alerts over two databases because even if one of them is in some kind of problem, it means... Both of them are conceptually running in production um, again, and we have to do it over a period of time, between a couple of weeks to a couple of months, and that's a long time to be like hyper alert and hyper ready. When we started doing these kinds of exercises back in the day, we were really naive. We thought, ah, it's going to take us, you know, a week, or two, we're done. <laughs> it's going to be, but like everything in production, whatever can go wrong, will go wrong, and stuff take much longer than you expect, and it impacts everything. It impacts new features that you need to deliver. It impacts cloud costs. It impacts the diligence of the team, both the one writing the services and the platform team that have to keep this, I don't know, databases alive and stuff like that, it has a lot of impact and we need to take it into consideration.
0: Sounds I mean, like quite a journey, scaling from just three engineers to over 300, scaling from just a couple of servers to 1,500, changing a lot of technologies along the way. We'd love to ask you one question, ask all of my guests, what's the single bug you remember the most?
1: The single bug, what, did I wrote? <laughs> Anybody there are so many of them over the years. It's it's really hard to remember. I think I'll give like the dignified chief architect answer, and then I'll give a concrete uh, example. But <laughs> the, the dignified chief architect answer is everything that's wrong with the system today. Everything that's that's a bit missing, be it uh, relevant schemas for uh, APIs or API proliferation or uh, whatever. Uh, that's on me. This is the mistakes of the past. Have F- Immediate impact now. Stuff that Reshev and and myself wrote 10, 9 years ago, people have to deal with it today. And it's <laughs> not 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 too not too easy, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's on us. As far as the biggest, I don't know, one that comes to light is during one of those database migrations. We had our VPR R and D back in the day told us, listen, you're migrating, and some of these keys are going to get expired. So write them a default TTL of I don't know two months. When we start, it's going to be in production. And if the TTLs need to be updated, they will be updated by the service and everything's going to be okay. Of course, it took us more than two months <laughs> to arrive in production. So, what happened uh, like uh, a week before or something like that, we realized that like 99% of the keys from the new database are going to get expired in a week and it's not in production yet. So we wrote like a Lua script that runs over all the keys in database and updates the DTL of everything. And this also takes a long time to run. And we missed by like, I don't know, a few single percentage (laughs) got evicted. But, uh, you know, it is what it is. Yeah,
0: sucks. Yeah. Now I'm guessing you guys are hiring.
1: Yes, we're hiring. Everyone's hiring. But I think that if what I spoke about right now interests you, like doing stuff with absurd amount of traffic and data and doing pure engineering work, pipelines and algorithm. And I don't know a lot of companies in the world right now that deal with our traffic and our challenges. The best thing about it is that Epstra is not stopping, right? The market is changing all the time and it's changing. The changes are always taking us further and further both in business complexity and in sheer volume of data. So what's true right now, I'm sure that if we'll see it in a couple of years and we'll talk about the data and scale, it's not going to be 140, 150 billion events per day. It's going to be 300 billion, something like that. It's going to double
0: itself. So if that interests you, we're open. So definitely check out AppsFlyer. And thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much, Neil, for joining us.
1: Thank you, Liran, for having me. Have a great
0: one. So that's a wrap on another episode of the Production First Mindset. Please remember to like, subscribe, and share this podcast. Let us know what you think of the show and reach out to me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Production First. Thanks again for joining us.